Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. Today's episode is episode 54, and we are excited to talk about non-retirement dollars. So uh, before we get started, we are excited to announce that uh, our partner, Jared Machen, he recently had his baby boy, Ellis. So that's an exciting announcement. Uh, Glad to have another member of the Brownlee team. So It's amazing, Nathan. We are growing at quite the clip. Uh, How old is your daughter now? So my daughter, she turns 11 weeks uh, today, actually. So uh, it's it's incredible to think back, uh, Jared having his baby boy, and I feel like it was forever ago. Uh, it's uh, it's been an incredible. <laughs> it like a long time. It's been an incredible 11 weeks. So excited to uh, share some stories with Jared, and uh, I glad he's been able to, to enjoy, enjoy some time with with Ellis. That's great. That's great. Let's see. So this week, talking about non-retirement dollars, and I think the shortest way to summarize this is that your financial plan changes drastically whenever you pass about $2 million in non-retirement brokerage dollars. Um, so maybe first, it might be helpful if I just outline who who is this applicable to. And I think the, the answer to that, there's maybe two or three camps. If you've been working in oil and gas for 30 plus years, well, you're kind of in the old benefit system. So when I say that, I'm saying, you know, if you're at Chevron or ExxonMobil in 1992, well, your benefit structure means that the arc of your wealth is going to be in pre-tax retirement plans. And we've got a bunch of content on that. Uh, We have an article on why financial planning is unique for those who work for large oil and gas companies. And, you know, it's basically all of the different tax, estate planning, retirement implications of having 90% of your balance sheet in pre-tax retirement plans. But how do you get big brokerage assets? Well, it's relevant to you even if you're in kind of that, that old guard of oil and gas and you've been at a, at a super major for decades. But if you're at an executive comp level and you have significant equity compensation, you get stock shares on an annual basis uh, as part of a bonus and maybe you have a cash bonus as well, this is probably relevant to you. Nathan, I think it's massively relevant to younger, to the younger demographic. So let's say you're 35, 40, maybe you still have a pension, maybe your company still has a 15% 401k match, but a lot of you don't. And if you do, your company's probably going to do away with some of those within the next decade. Big picture, companies are moving away from pensions, massive 401k matches, and instead they're going more towards equity compensation, RSUs, different types of stock plans, and cash bonuses. So the future of wealth building is going to be more intensive on saving brokerage dollars, saving dollars that are not in a retirement account. I think one other disclosure is we're going to talk about tax, estate planning, life planning, uh, insurance risk management, but there's also you know different camps here. Some of the topics are relevant if you've 
you know, hit 2 million in brokerage dollars. Some of the topics are going to be more relevant if you're, you know, dealing with 20, 30, 40, 50 million or more. And so with that being said, how about we dive into tax opportunities? Nathan, where should we start with what kind of tax opportunities should be on your radar if you have significant non-retirement assets? Sure. So I think one of the first topics that we like to address with uh, clients in this uh, in this tax bracket, oftentimes uh, this includes uh, some some uh, pretty high tax brackets uh, due to the income levels. And so uh, we want to make sure that we are avoiding any excessive interest or uh, dividends or capital gains in these taxable brokerage accounts. And so it's much more beneficial to locate those assets inside uh, tax deferred accounts like 401ks or IRAs uh, just to avoid the the punitive tax penalties uh, from uh, having those in the taxable accounts. And so uh, another thing to think about is just being thoughtful about your rebalance, uh, your rebalancing. Uh, If you are trying to rebalance within a Within a taxable brokerage account, uh, you you don't necessarily want to realize cap gains and rebalance back to your target allocation. Uh, you want to probably utilize the the holistic uh, view of your portfolio and make those rebalances in, uh, like we mentioned, your IRAs or your four hundred one ks. I think that's perfect. And you think about you know some people really like to have a personal trading account. Um, so if you just really enjoy investing markets and, and trying to pick some individual stocks, you know, we've, we've got stuff that typical to any CFP, we're going to tell you, try to not have more than five or 10% of your balance sheet in there. But if that's you, gosh, that really needs to be done in a tax deferred IRA. Um, so let's say that you have $2 million in a brokerage account. And maybe it's maybe it's trading or maybe it's mutual fund distributions. But let's say that you have fifty thousand dollars in short term capital gains. That's a small fraction of the overall account. So we're not talking we're not talking about some crazy massive you know gain here that takes a ton of churning and excessive trading. That's a small portion of the account. But Nathan, if you're in a high tax bracket and and that happens. Well, gosh, I mean, you're looking at an additional almost $20,000 in in tax owed. So that's $20,000 that goes to the IRS that, that really shouldn't have. So totally agree. It's almost like number one is just avoid those tax mistakes. Oftentimes easily avoidable. Uh, they just need to uh, be paid attention to. So completely agree. It's a, it's a good place to start. What else, uh, what else would you say is uh, important when it comes to tax decisions? You know, I'm going to say this one. This is probably not relevant for most people listening to this, but you're probably going to find it pretty interesting. Uh, If you're inclined to start a business, real estate is so much better to operate with non-retirement assets than self-directed IRAs. Uh, So you have way more tax opportunity. Um, You can do things in real estate like depreciate uh, the assets that you purchase. You can get a cost segregation analysis and bonus depreciation, accelerate depreciation. Um, simple idea there is a dollar that comes back to you today is more valuable than a dollar that comes back to you 20 years from now. And so, you know, real estate has so many different tax advantages. And I'll quickly mention that if you're in a situation where you and your spouse, one of you, is an extremely high income earner and the other spouse has the uh, desire to be a professional real estate investor, 
you can actually take this to another extreme and you can buy properties, cost segregate them, bonus depreciate them, and then you can offset active income. It's probably one of the biggest opportunities that the tax code incentivizes. Uh, but I do want to you know, give a disclaimer there. Uh, we love real estate. I think it's a tremendous asset class. Um, I have no desire to start a second business. Um, so huge believer in it. Love all of the tax benefits. Personally, for my family's financial plan, we're not, we're not pursuing that. Uh, because we've got a bunch of kids. My wife's in law school. I own a business and we're not looking for a second business right now. Um, but I think it's important to mention that when we think about tax opportunities, if you start to have significant brokerage assets, that's on the table. What's next? I think that's great. I, I think one of the exciting things about uh, accumulating such large uh, brokerage assets is it gets you gives you a lot of flexibility to prioritize what's important to you. And so uh, I know a lot of our households that we serve, they have charitable inclinations and they like to uh, gift to charities. And so one of the things to think about when we are uh, donating to charities is uh, a and donating appreciated investments. Uh, that's oftentimes a really great way to one, uh, accomplish uh, the ultimate goal, which is to uh, donate to charity, but also uh, you get the personal benefit of uh, avoiding that tax of, of ultimately having to sell that, uh, that investment at some point and realizing the capital gains. So by uh, donating that appreciated investment, uh, you can uh, avoid the capital gain and then just repurchase uh, the investment with cash uh, at a later date to rebalance your portfolio. Uh, another thing that I would think about there is if you are choosing to uh, donate uh, an investment and it's held at a loss, uh, you could actually have a pretty good opportunity to sell an, uh, a depreciated asset, capture the loss, uh, harvest the loss, to offset against your gains later on. So uh, just some things to think about when you're considering donating to charity. Uh, yeah, anything anything else on that topic? Yeah, and I think if you stack some of those things on top of each other, um, you know, you start to harvest tax losses. If you give to charity, you give your highest appreciated securities. You never wanna see losses, obviously, but we also know that the market is going to crash on average every five to seven years. Losses are going to happen. It's going to have a correction almost once every year. So when you start to do those things, you harvest losses, you give higher appreciated securities to charity, um, it opens up the door for pretty significant tax, pretty significant gains that you can accumulate without incurring a tax bill. Um, and so it really can be advantageous. I think the last point that I would make on this is if you're near retirement age, we've done some episodes on this, but I want to quickly, succinctly summarize this idea. Non-retirement brokerage dollars are so, so strategic. So if you're nearing retirement, the question we're thinking through is how do we lower your lifetime tax rate? Uh, so we want to look at your tax return for this year. We want to figure out, you know, are there short-term things we can do to lower next year's tax bill? And that's that's great. It's valuable. But the bigger question we want to ask is what taxes are you going to pay over the next 20 years, 30 years? And are there three, four or five things we can do to materially lower that number of lifetime taxes? And without going into detail, having non-retirement brokerage assets is a huge game changer in that. Uh, so one idea, 0% capital gains. 
Uh, if you retire, you no longer have earned income. Let's say you're married, finally joined on your tax return. I mean, you can harvest $100,000 in capital gains at a 0% tax rate with a standard deduction. It really $105,000, $107,000. Um, and so you could sell 200,000 worth of securities. And let's say there's an embedded $100,000 gain in there that is taxed at a 0% rate. And let's say you do that from age 60 to 70. And so the, the end result of that is you just over a decade, you harvested a million dollars in capital gains and you paid a 0% tax rate on all of that million dollars. Compare that to selling capital gains while you're still in a high tax bracket. Well, that's a 23.8% tax hit. And so you're talking about a million dollars in cap gains while you're still in a high tax bracket. That's $235,000, $240,000 in taxes owed. But if you spread that out, use the 0% capital gain harvesting. Gosh, you're looking at a 0% tax rate on all of it for that decade in that hypothetical scenario. Uh, last point, Roth conversions. We've done a lot on this. Uh, simply put, having brokerage assets is huge because you can live off of the brokerage assets. Use that for your life expenses. You can also pay pay the tax bill incurred by Roth conversions, and that allows you to convert over the four, first decade of retirement. It allows you to convert at way, way lower tax brackets. So, you know, if you convert two hundred fifty thousand a year in a married filing joint tax return right now. Well, $250,000 a year, that's going to give you an average tax rate of about 15%. Do that for 10 years. That's $2.5 million that goes into a Roth at a 15% average tax rate. Uh, compare that to, you know, if you're working now and you try to do Roth conversions, or if you wait until you're 80 and you have required minimum distributions, you're not staring at a 15% tax rate. You're probably staring at 30% plus. Um, so those are huge opportunities. But with that being said, how about we dive into estate planning? Yeah, great. I would say the first place to start with estate planning considerations is it's really just the basics and uh, things like uh, understanding where you want your assets to be directed. And that will be through things like a will or a trust, uh, making sure your beneficiaries are uh, listed accurately on, on your accounts, uh, any type of medical care through uh, uh, tools such as like a living will, uh, medical directives, things of that nature, making sure that you have a financial power of attorney to, for uh, financial decisions if you are by chance incapacitated. Uh, and then I think one of the topics that we speak about pretty often uh, that's maybe underrated is just the organization of everything, uh, making sure all the passwords and documents are in a place that family members or important loved ones can access. So I think that's a great place to start. Uh, what else would you say in terms of estate planning considerations uh, for this demographic? You know, I think the question starts to become, are your total assets nearing 5 million? And what age does that happen? Um, so if you've got significant brokerage assets, you know, our podcast title is, is 2 million in non-retirement assets, you're usually going to have some retirement assets on top of that as well. And so, you know, the end result here is the estate tax. You're wanting to start to ask the question, am I going to have an estate tax? And are there things I can do now to lower that liability? Um, you know, you think about we did an episode on a estate planning a while ago and the famous analogy that everyone loves to use, and it's perfect, 
if you want to relocate a giant oak tree, you know, think about a hundred, 200 year old oak tree. If you want to relocate that oak tree on the other side of a fence, well, you've got two options. One is you spend an enormous amount of money and you relocate that oak tree on the other side of the fence. And it may not work. It may not take. The other option is you throw, you throw seeds on the other side of the fence and you wait 40 years for it to grow. Um, and if you've got time, that's the better option. It's a drastically easier option. So estate taxes, same exact thing. The estate tax exemption today is 24 million if you're married, 12 million if you're not. So most Americans are not there. Now, if you are, you certainly need to think about taking action in the next couple of years before they lower the estate tax exemption, potentially in 2026. So if you are there, you need to think about that and you need to start to consider that. But even if you're listening to this and thinking, you know what, guys, I don't have $24 million, so I don't think this is relevant to me. Well, there's two factors at play here. And for a lot of you, it will be. So let's pretend that you're 40 years old and you're at four and a half million right now in total net worth. Well, two things can happen over the next 20 years. The first thing is your wealth can keep compounding. If you're still working, if you're still actively investing and saving, uh, your wealth can continue to compound. Remember, if it grows at 7% a year, Nathan, how many years does it take for that to double? Yeah, that's going to be uh, roughly 10 years. So Yeah, so four and a half million, 10 years from now. Now it's 9 million, another 10 years. Now it's 18 million. Uh, that's at a 7% growth rate. So the first factor is your wealth continues to compound over time. But there's a second factor that makes this a pretty big problem. The estate tax exemption is probably not going to stay at 24 million for a married couple, 12 million for single. It's probably going to be a lot less than that. Um, right now, it's scheduled to cut in half uh, down to 12 million for a married couple, 6 million for, for a single. And so, you know, you think about those two things happening. If your wealth keeps growing and the ceiling gets lower, eventually those two things are going to meet. And so I think the big picture takeaway is you need to start thinking about estate taxes. If you're at, let's say, $5 million and you're still in your 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and certainly if you're in your 30s. Uh, so a couple different things that we can do there. What are some simple ways that we can start to think about how do we manage estate taxes long term? Sure, absolutely. So going back to your analogy of throwing that oak seed over the fence, uh, I think a easy place to start is just the annual exclusion. Uh, you can gift uh, seventeen thousand per person uh, if you're married, thirty-four thousand, uh, and so that's just an easy way every year to gift that amount uh, out of your estate uh, to uh, loved ones, to charity, to to uh, to others, uh, to start to spend down that, uh, that really large portfolio that you've accumulated. Uh, what, what else uh, would you say is, is helpful? That's perfect. Um, yeah, the annual exclusion, 17,000 per person per year. So if you're married and you have a child who's not married, you and your spouse can give 34,000 to your child. If your child is married, theoretically, you could give, what are we at now, 68,000 uh, to your child and your child's spouse. And let's say you have three kids. Well, you could do that for all three of them. 
So you can start to, over a 10-year period, you can start to get a lot of assets out of your estate. Needs to be done very carefully. Uh, you need to make sure you're keeping enough assets in your estate to pay for your life. But once your balance sheet gets big enough, you absolutely need to start considering this. So way easier to, to plan for estate tax if you're you know at 6 million at age 40 rather than 60 million at age 70. Uh, but let's talk about that real quick. If you are at 60 million or 600 million, you know, with the estate tax exemption, similar idea, similar concept, you're allowed to remove 24 million if you're married from your estate. And so let's say you are at $60 million. The, the really simplified version is you want to start to think about, let's remove the right part from my estate. And the estate tax is a flat 40%. So we're talking about one of the most, one of the highest, harshest taxes in the tax code. Um, and so the thought there is if you want to remove part of your estate and, and get it out of your estate to remove it from estate taxes, try to remove part of your estate that has the highest growth potential. Um, you could also use some tools like a family limited partnership to potentially get a discounted valuation. Um, so that could potentially, you know, the 10 second version of this is you might gift 24 million out of your estate, but using an FLP, you might be able to get 48 million or more out of your estate, but get a valuation on 24 million. Uh, for example, if it's a privately held business. And so you want to start to be considerate of that. Again, the reason you want to start thinking about getting your estate exemption filled is we're probably going to see that lowered here in about three years. And so you don't want to be in a situation where you didn't fill up 24 million and then it's 2027 and now it's at 12 million. Well, now you're only allowed to do 12 and that $12 million Delta, you know, 12 million times a 40% tax rate is the tax that you didn't save there. So I think that covers it. Um, estate planning considerations. Should we move on to life planning if you have significant brokerage assets? Absolutely. I, I think this is probably one of my uh, favorite topics just because, like I mentioned uh, in the in the start, it's, it's an exciting topic that uh, once you accumulate this many brokerage assets, you do have a little bit more freedom, uh, like you mentioned. And so uh, I think a good place to start is trying to identify what is your ideal future state uh, when you accumulate this level of assets, you have a lot of flexibility. Uh, you can choose to retire early or continue working. Either one can work perfectly fine. Uh, it's just going to uh, impact your usage of certain brokerage assets differently. Um, you could decide to take a lower paying job, follow a passion. I know you mentioned earlier investing in businesses. Maybe that's real estate for you. Maybe that's other private, uh, private businesses uh, that a lot of our clients get uh, excited about. Uh, we've already talked about charitable giving. Um, all of these different topics, uh, whatever you may want to pursue, will uh, utilize your brokerage assets and your portfolio in different ways. And there's a lot of different planning topics around those those different uh, different paths. So, what else would you consider on on the topic of life planning, uh, Justin? You know, the great thing about brokerage assets is there's no strings attached, like the fifty nine and a half rule. So just like you alluded to, um, when you're trying to figure out what's your ideal future life, where do you want to be? Well, you don't have to work until 55 to get that 401k exemption. You don't have to work until 59 and a half to be able to touch your IRA. I mean, these are brokerage assets. 
you could retire at 44 if you want to. Um, I think another question is a lot of people don't want to retire and stop work forever for 60 years. <laughs> you know, a lot of people that's that's not super enticing. So I do think it is helpful to start to ask the question, hey, you've you've crossed some milestones with your balance sheet. Your net worth is, is hitting some milestones. How much wealth do you want to accumulate? How much do you want to give to your kids or to charity? And so, you know, if you're sitting there and, you know, you're at two and a half million in brokerage assets, two and a half million in, in retirement assets or real estate assets, and you're at five million total and you're 40 years old, well, I think that can start to dictate some of the decisions that you make. Where do you want to work? How long do you want to work? Uh, how much freedom do you want? How much time do you want to spend with your family? Uh, how much of a house do you want to buy? Um, and so it's, you know, we often phrase, I, I'm trying to think of the gr- best way to say this. We often phrase spending in a sense of spending more is always evil. Spending less is always virtuous or admirable. And I do want to tweak that a little bit because there is an element where, man, if you're making 900,000 a year, you've already passed 5 million, you're 40 years old, you've got a few kids. Well, guess what? It really doesn't matter if you buy a $1.2 million home instead of a $400,000 home. You can buy the more expensive home. You could go above 1.2 because the end result is, well, that that's great. That's fine. And I do think it's so valuable on a spiritual, personal level to think through what is enough. Can I be content on less? And there is so much merit to that. But there is a financial planning reality where always spending the lower amount, well, it's just going to result in an enormous estate 30 years later, uh, which is great. And that's good too. But being a little bit more intentional and really asking the question, what do I want? If you're married, what do my spouse and I want? Uh, And and really being intentional with what you pursue, uh, being joyful in your spending, being strategic in your spending, there's merit to that. Yeah, I think those are all great points. It's it's so true that uh, a lot of our clients that uh, reach this this level of uh, assets that is some of the most fruitful conversations are, you know, what do what do we want to do now? And uh, a lot of times these individuals are busy and they don't necessarily uh, have the time or have spent spent time thinking about uh, what their future what they want their future to look like. So uh, I think these are really important conversations to have. Do you want to go to insurance planning and maybe wrap up there? Let's do it. Um, I think the you know real big picture idea here is if brokerage assets are getting really big, it just means that you're more vulnerable uh, from low probability events. Um, Nathan, what all should we dive into there? What are we what are we getting at here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest uh, topic that we want to touch on is uh, really just. The brokerage assets are do not uh, they do not uh, benefit from the same protection as some of your other accounts. So, uh, if you by chance are, are sued uh, for just a low probability event, somebody is at your home, uh, maybe at your pool, and they slip and fall and they break their leg, and they decide to sue you. Uh, the brokerage assets aren't necessarily going to benefit from uh, protection. Uh, like your other qualified plans, like your 401k, ERISA protects those those assets from uh, from any type of uh, litigation and, and uh, sue, suing. Um, uh, in addition to that, IRAs are also protected. So, what we want to make sure is depending that on state laws, but yes, depending on state laws, yeah. 
especially in Texas, pretty darn protected. Pretty good point. And so we just want to make sure that we're assessing that risk. And uh, oftentimes we will uh, do an analysis around umbrella coverage, umbrella insurance uh, to cover some of those risks. Um, and uh, we feel like it's a really important uh, conversation once you start accumulating brokerage assets. Yeah. And, you know, I think I'm just thinking out loud here and this will be fun to think through. But let's say that you've got a really substantial net worth and you're worth more than $500 million. It almost makes me wonder if you should start to consider having a really expensive primary residence because your primary residence also, you know, should enjoy some asset protection uh, within different state laws. Uh, And so, you know, it starts to, you never really think about, hey, it makes a ton of sense to buy a $20 million home. Um, but gosh, if you think about an extreme asset protection plan, I, yeah, I'm, I'm more just thinking out loud, wondering if that, if that could be a benefit, could make sense. I'm sure some clients would love to have that, uh, be the recommendation and the, and the cause for purchasing the, the dream home. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it really is interesting. Your tax situation, your estate plan, your life planning, retirement planning, your insurance risk management, all of those topics just get a little bit different. There's some added focus that needs to happen. And I would say, I mean, I think the best way to say it, the stakes get a little bit higher for making wrong decisions in tax, estate planning, risk management, and life planning. When you start to see brokerage assets pass two, three, four million dollars and above. Um, so I think that I think that covers a lot of it. And as always, we love to hear from listeners. We also love reviews wherever you listen to our podcast. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you. Any ideas, reach out to us. And until next time, uh, enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.